Our sermon today is taken from Psalm 110. This is the word of God. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the wound of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the white earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Thus is the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Joshua. Friends, let us pray one more time for the preaching of his word. Father, it's an amazing thing that you are a king, that you rule from Zion, that you're not a king who rules over us in tyranny, you're not a king that rules over us with brute force, but rather you are a king, Lord God, that is absolutely attractive, that cause us a holy people to offer themselves up freely, who protects his people, who is a priest at the same time after the order of Melchizedek. Father, we pray, Lord God, that we would fix our eyes on you, that you are glorious, that you have made us for yourself, and that we need to find our rest in you. So, Father, take our eyes off of ourselves, Lord God. Take our hearts and seal it, for we truly are prone to wonder. Father, help us in these ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we are taking a break from the Gospel of John. We just finished Gospel of John chapter 17 three weeks ago. So we're taking a three-week break, and this is the last of those three weeks. We decided to take a look at three different Psalms. So the first week, we took a break, and um, we took a look at Psalm chapter 2. And the last week, we took at Psalm 40. And then now we're going to take a look at Psalm 110. Now, this Psalm is particularly dense. This Psalm is particularly special. This psalm is particularly mysterious, even. And remember this psalm, um, psalms, what are psalms? Psalms are the worship songs of the people of Israel. Psalms are the worship songs that the people of Israel sang to their God in worship in the synagogues. Mothers would have memorized the psalm and sang it to their children. Fathers would have thought about these psalms daily. Children would have grown up memorizing them too. These are things that people grew up with that filled their devotional life, that filled their church life, that filled their thoughts about God. So when we take a look at the Psalms, we're not just taking a look at beautiful poetry. We're looking at how the people of God actually worshiped God in the Old Covenant. We're also telling, we're, we're also getting to know how, what Jesus prayed. What were the songs that Jesus grew up with? What were the songs that filled his brain? What were the songs that were being sung in a synagogue where he was growing up? What are the things that were filling the people of God? And it's instructive to take a look at the Psalms sometimes and to compare it to our contemporary worship music, right? And, but this Psalm specifically is mysterious and specifically special because this is the most cited Psalm in all of the New Testament. In fact, it's the most cited Old Testament scripture in all of the, Old, the New Testament. It's cited over 20 times, especially verse 1. It's cited by Jesus. It's cited by Paul and Colossians and Ephesians. It's pretty much all over the place in the book of Hebrews. 
Peter alludes to it in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's just in a whole lot of places. But this is a psalm which is mysterious because, remember, psalms were worship music. They're, they're supposed to be poetry and songs for you to worship God with. And this is something that is quoted by the New Testament a lot. But yet at the same time, if you look at verse 1, the psalm is directed at someone other than Yahweh. Look at what it says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. There's this mysterious figure in Psalm 110 that the Jews would have grown up with. The Jews would have sung, maybe it's in the back of their heads, but it hasn't really gotten to them. It hasn't really gotten to their consciousness. They haven't been made aware that this is directed at someone, somehow, who's distinct from Yahweh. So we're going to dive in. And this is a special psalm. It's a dense psalm. I tremble just trying to preach it because there's so much in this text. But we're going to go right into it, all right? Four points from today's psalm. First, the Lord here is the Lord who is king. Second, the Lord here is the Lord who is priest. Third, the Lord here is the Lord who is warrior. Fourth, the Lord here is David's Lord. So first, Lord is king. Second, Lord is priest. Third, Lord is warrior. Fourth, David's Lord. A lot to cover. Let's jump into it. All right, so first, Psalm 110 tells us about the Lord who is himself king. Now look again at verse 1. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, I think all English translations are, are going to, you're going to see this. The first word Lord is in all caps. Do you see that? L-O-R-D, it's all, all caps. But the second word Lord it's not all caps. It's got capital L and then it's O-R-D. It's smaller letter case, right? These are actually two different Hebrew words. The word Lord in the first instance is the proper name of God, Yahweh. It's his proper personal name. It's how the people of God knew him as. That's his name, Yahweh. It's the name that God had revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. He is the great I Am. That's his name. And that name signifies not only his covenant with his people, his personal relationship with them, but also his utter independence, his power, his authority, his aseity, as the old theologians called it, his absolute sovereignty. That's Yahweh. That's his proper personal name. And then somehow there's Yahweh who, sa- who says to David's Lord, my Lord, that my there refers to David, Lord, on the other hand, who's sitting at Yahweh's right hand. And this second Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai, which is a, uh, it's a title. It's not a proper name, but rather it's a title. So, you know, you have President Joko Wee. Joko Wee is his personal name. You don't get to go to the president and say, yo, Joko Wee, what's up? You, you don't do that because you don't actually know him. You don't get to address someone by their personal first name unless you actually knew the person. So the first Lord there is Yahweh. That's his personal name. And then the word Lord there is his title. Just as president is a title for our president, Joko Wee, right? So... Somehow he's saying, Yahweh says to my Lord. So David has an authority that is not just Yahweh, the sovereign personal God, but also this Lord who is, as the second part of verse 1 says, sitting at his right hand. And sitting at his right hand in the Old Testament refers to him sharing in his power. So Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis 39 and 50, remember he was Prime Minister of Egypt, he was sitting at Pharaoh's right hand, which means that he shared in Pharaoh's authority, shares Pharaoh's power. So in other words, if you're sitting at somebody's right hand, especially if you're sitting at a king's right hand, you were a representative of the king. You were equal with the king. You get to speak. 
speak on the king's behalf. You share it in his power, his authority. When people address you, that means you're in a way addressing the king himself. So Yahweh has someone on his right hand who's sitting there and being seated there means that he's at rest. Means that's where he belongs. He's not standing there. He's not anxious. He's not a restless or insecure kind of authority. But rather, that is where he belongs. He's seated at the right hand of God. And that's his proper place. That's his proper place. Not only that, he says that this is someone who would have enemies. And these enemies would be under him. So not only is Yahweh sharing his authority, his power, his glory with someone who's sitting at his right hand. But they too would rule enemies together. They too would be over their enemies together as if they were under his feet. That's interesting. That's mysterious. So somehow we have a king here who notice is not David. We're going to get back to the later. But at the same time, it's also equal with Yahweh, ruling with him, his representative, but at the same time distinct from Yahweh. So equal but distinct. Unity, yet diverse. Identity, but also relative. There's there's a relationship between the two of them, but at the same time, there's unity between the two of them. So that's a mysterious thing from verse 1, and that's the most cited passage in all the New Testaments. And we are told a little bit more about this. He's not just seated at the right hand. That's his proper place of power and authority. But also, he dwells with the Lord in intimate communion. We get this in verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion. Now, what does Zion mean? What does Zion refer to? Zion is the heavenly dwelling place of God. It is God's throne room where God makes his home. It's where his presence is most intimately dwelling. And friends, throughout all of the Old Testament, you can't approach God's dwelling place unless you had a pure, intimate communion with him, unless you were utterly sinless, unless you were were, utterly holy. You share in his glory. That's the only way you can actually come close to him. That's why when God passes by Moses, right? Moses was about to die. And God says, let me cover you, Moses, and I'll pass over you. Isaiah sees God and he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. I can't come close to you. But this Lord is with Zion. It's in Zion sharing that seat with the Lord. He's got just an intimate communion with him. And again, he wields a mighty scepter that comes from heaven itself. Comes from heaven itself. So whoever this Lord is, he can't be merely human, surely. Rather, he rules from heaven himself. He represents a scepter from heaven, from Zion, with intimate communion with God. And he rules in the midst of his enemies from the heavenly places. So he's not merely human, and we're going to see that he has to be human, Because in verse 4, he's also a priest. And a priest is, by definition, someone who represents humanity to God. So he's not merely human. Somehow he shares in divine authority. Now, at this point at verse verse 2, right, you're going to get glimmers uh, and images of this rulership and authority that might be scary. There might be a ruler that rules with brute force. There might be a ruler that rules in fear and judgment, right? But... That's not what we get. We're not seeing a tyrannical power and authority who rules with brute force. Rather, look at verse 3. This is the kind of king who rules in the midst of his enemies, but at the same time, he rules in such a way where there is also a people under him that are not his enemies, 
that have offered themselves freely on the day of your power. So there's an enemies out there that this, 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 this Lord is ruling over. But then there's some other people below him that wants to follow this king who are protected by this king and offer themselves, offer themselves freely. The imagery there is there will be people who want to die for this king. This king is such an attractive authority, such an attractive power, such a non-tyrannical attractive power that there's a people under him that he's protecting that would die for this person on the day of your power. They're not shirking away in fear and trembling at the point, but rather they are coming to him. And it says, they come to him in holy garments. That's a beautiful imagery, holy garments. These are righteous people that would follow the king. These are righteous, in other words, these are people who with integrity, with integrity would follow this king freely, offering themselves up, would die for this king. These are not people who are simply yes men following an authority. This is not an authority who needs to insecurely manipulate or guilt his people into following him. This is, this is a king who walks in, who's seated at the right hand of God, and somehow when he walks into this throne, everyone simply looks at him, and without him even saying anything at the day of his power, people will say, that's the king I want to follow. And they would die for him. See, what makes a good king and what makes a bad king? If you want to summarize the, the Lord of the Rings, for example, you could probably summarize the whole of the trilogy, the movies and the books, as a tale of two kings. What is it that makes King Sauron very different from King Aragorn? What is it that makes a bad king and a good king? You see, in all of the movies that you've seen, in all the novels that you've read, any good leader, any good king, well, let's talk about bad kings first. Any bad king, in, in, in The Lord of the Rings, any, any novels, any movies you've watched, any bad king is always a king that you feared and obeyed, but you couldn't come close to. A bad king, a bad leader is someone that is utterly transcendent, that you might fear, that you might want to obey out of fear, out of out of fear of his judgment, but at the same time, you can't get close to him. So there were beautiful scenes in, 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 in the Lord of the Rings where Sauron was coming forth, and then Saruman, right, his wizard, is like, oh, he's coming, I can't get close. Or Gollum, who sees him, and everyone, all the orcs might be following him and obeying him and doing his bidding, but they can't get close to him. And then contrast that with the good king Aragorn, who what? After he assumed his throne, and Frodo gets up at the end, Frodo comes and walks right up to Aragorn in his majestic clothing and hugs him and says, you have finally arrived. You are the true king. And Aragorn is the kind of king who in the first volume of the Lord of the Rings, Boromir, who's dying, who was supposed to be the king until Aragorn, who was the true heir, showed up. Boromir, instead of feeling jealous towards Aragorn, in his dying breath says, Aragorn, if you were going to be king, I would have followed you. I would have laid down the throne. You are the rightful heir to this king. In other words, a good leader, a good king, it's not just someone that you would follow and obey, it's also someone that you could get close to. A good father is someone that you might be tremble if you did something wrong and your mother could say to you, wait until dad comes home. And you're trembling, right? You're just fearful because you know there's going to be consequences. You knew there were going to be punishments. But at the same time, you know that he's your daddy still. You can come close to his bed. In other words, there is a sense in which this king is both transcendent and utterly eminent. He's a king that you're not just fearfully obeying, but also willingly you would die for. In other words, that's why, to make a silly example, right? That's why Ethan Hunt is more of an attractive leader than is James Bond, who is a lone 
warrior, right? In every movie in Mission Impossible, there's always one scene where Ethan Hunt receives the mission, and he looks at Ving Rhames and Jeremy Renner, or whoever his team was at the time of Mission Impossible. There's no continuity between the members of the team, right? Whoever the members of the team, he, Ethan Hunt gets the message, and instead of just flying out on his own, he just looks at the team. But sometimes, before he even says anything, one of the characters of the team says what? Ethan, you know, if you do this, we'll do it with you. You know. And you're looking at Tom Cruise, you're like, yeah, man, it's kind of hard not to follow this, this leader. But it's, uh, you see, there's, there's, there's a sense in which there's a beauty of this kind of leadership where this kind of leader doesn't need to threaten his people. This kind of leader doesn't need to rule and say, hey, if you don't follow me, I'm going to kick you off the team. Hey, this is the kind of leader that walks into the room and he say, without even saying a word, you just trust this person. He rules in justice and wisdom, but yet at the same time in a way that does not lessen intimacy. So that's the first point. He's a Lord who is king. Secondly, he's not just a Lord who is king. He's also a Lord who is a, a king, but also a priest. This is in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what in the world does that mean? Who's Melchizedek? What does it mean that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, especially when God doesn't change? Well, you see, priests in the Old Testament times, who are priests? Priests were people set apart, um, born after the Levitical order, oftentimes, and they were, they were to go into the Holy of Holies to represent the people of God to God himself. The priest was the mediator between, between man and God. They were to take the offerings and the sin of man and place them before God and make sacrifices on man's behalf. So if a king represented God to man, a priest represented man to God. Okay, So a priest was always your advocate. They were always interceding on your behalf. If there was supposed to be a judgment rendered upon you, you know, the priest would come before God and say, Lord, I shall intercede for these people. What was Moses doing after the people of God were sinning after the golden calf? Moses went after God, right? He says, Lord, we've sinned, but don't take your presence away from us. Moses was a representative priest on the behalf of his people. When Abraham was interceding for Sodom, Lord, if 10 people were righteous in your city, would you not spare the city? So this priest is someone who would speak on your behalf before a holy God. And this priest, however, is not a priest that is provisional, nor is he a priest that is ever off the job. He is always on the job, and the Lord has appointed him in divine appointment. This is a priest with the same authority as a king, and that's unheard of. That's unheard of. You see, a king in divine authority oftentimes had clashes with the priest in the Old Testament. When, when a king goes awry, the priest has to intermediate for the king uh, to God, right? If, if the priest goes awry, then the king has to render judgment on the priest in the Old Testament. And sometimes there's, there's, there's a conflict between the two of them, and the people underneath them didn't know what to do. But this is somehow a person who had divine authority and the perfect representative of humanity at the same time, so that if this person was on your side, you know you're good. You know you're good. He was appointed by God with divine authority, and at the same time, he's the perfect representative of man. In fact, this is not this, this advocate. This advocate is not someone that is for hire or for pay. Why? Because Melchizedek, that name, and we can talk about this a little bit more. Melchizedek, that name means the king of righteousness. 
The only other place in the Old Testament where Melchizedek is mentioned is in Genesis 14. You don't have to turn there. But Melchizedek, who's described in Genesis 14 as the king of peace, the king of righteousness, a priest of God, gave blessings to Abraham to confirm Abraham's victory over Canaanite kings. So this priestly king Melchizedek, who appeared for like three verses in the Old Testament, is somehow supposed to represent the ideal priest who is perfectly righteous and the ideal king who will bring about peace. He is your advocate and if this person is on your side, he will be your perfect advocate. He will speak on behalf of you perfectly. He will always carry out justice. He will never speak untruth against you. And when he intercedes on your behalf and defends you, you know you are in good hands. King of righteousness, king of peace. And at the same time, the priest, he's never off the job. He's going to be there forever. He's never going to die. There's no sin in him. And he's perfectly righteous. He's always going to be there for you. There's that scene again in Molly's Game, one of the, my favorite movies in the past year. There's this, one of the most moving scenes in that movie. It's been a few months now, so you can't complain to me about spoiling a movie. But in one of the, my favorite scenes in Molly's Game, remember Jessica Chastain's character, Molly, is being tried, and the prosecution is against her, and Idris Elba plays his, her lawyer, right? One of the moving scenes in that movie is that you would want, you see, it's one thing to get a lawyer that you want to just hire to do the job. That lawyer might or might not believe in your case. They might not want to defend you, but they have to defend you because you hired that person to be your defender, to be your advocate, right? Well, what you really want for a lawyer to be truly convincing, as this movie was trying to show, is a lawyer that actually believes in the case, that actually believes that you're innocent. So one of the most moving scenes in that movie was when the judges were not present, they were in an informal meeting, it was not in the courtroom, and it was a meeting with the prosecutors, and Idris Elba's character lost it. Why? Even apart from the judge, even apart from the courtroom, Idris Elba's character, who was the lawyer, lost it, and he lost his temper. Why? Because he's saying, you guys don't get it. She's innocent. I've looked at her case. I've looked at everything that she's ever done. I've looked at her records. Look, she's innocent. Why don't you understand? And it was one of the most moving scenes because he didn't have to do that. He was, quote-unquote, off the job. But he believed in her. And he believed in her. He believed in her. And then at the end of the movie, there's a sense in which because he fought for her so much, you know, the judge was moved. Everyone was moved. Why? Because he believed. He wasn't just a lawyer and advocate for hire. He was a lawyer of perfect righteousness. You see, if you are interested in righteousness' sake, this is not just you when you're on the job. You were on it and you believed in it, whether or not you're on the clock or not, right? And that's exactly what we have here. We have someone who's not provisional, someone who's never off the job, someone who's always a priest, who's a representative on your behalf. Friends, if this person is on your team and defending you, you know you've got your back covered. And that explains a lot of why verse 3 says that all these people would offer themselves up freely because he is the king of righteousness who is at the same time the defender, the advocate, the perfect priest who would never go away. But not only that, he's also, friends, in verses 5, 6, and 7, a warrior. Verses 5 and 6 and 7, 
And this is our third point. He's a warrior. The Lord is at your right hand. This is again referring to this figure, shadowy figure, Adonai. At your right hand, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. So he's not just a king who rules and talks the big talk, but rather he's the kind of king that is able to execute judgment. If he's a king of righteousness, of course he's able to execute judgment. Wrath is not against love, but wrath is rather directed at anything that is against holiness, against justice, against love, against true righteousness. And he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And then verse 7 finally says that anyone who follows him, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. He will give them rest. He's the representative. Notice the singular pronouns. It's he will execute judgment. He will shatter chiefs. He will drink from the brook. He will shatter kings on the day of his earth. He will execute judgment, right? There is a representative figure here where because he's defending you, because he's protecting his people, any enemy that is against his people will be executed. That's what a good king does. That's why you don't, you don't fear anymore. This is the kind of king that will actually fill the court. Now, this is why, by the way, friends, when the disciples of Jesus, when Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, and the people around Jesus saw his ministry, what were they, what were they asking? Lord, are you going to give over the kingdom back to Israel now? Are you going to judge the Romans now? Are you going to judge the Gentiles now? Are you going to restore the kingdom back to Israel? What, are they, what do they have in the back of their heads? They're having texts like this. They were expecting that the Messiah would come and he would come in judgment. He would come in judgment among the nations and he would indeed fill them up with corpses. There's no shirking that. There's no veiling that kind of language. They are actually, they are actually expecting this to come. So that when Jesus came as the Messiah, they immediately thought of texts like this and they said, surely this is the time where he would come in judgment. Surely this is the time where all the nations would now be filled with corpses. And we as his people would be vindicated, would be raised up in glory. Political rule will be ours again. That's exactly what's going to happen. And we're finally going to enjoy this rest and we'll drink from the brook by his way. That's their expectation. That's how they read it. In other words, friends, when they sang and read Psalm 110 in their synagogues, when they were growing up, they automatically assumed that they belonged in verse 3 and not in verse 6. They automatically assumed these disciples of Jesus, these followers of Jesus in Jesus' day before his death and crucifixion and resurrection, they automatically assumed that they were the holy ones and the corpses are the other nations. They automatically assumed that they would be the ones who offered themselves freely for Jesus' sake. Remember what Peter said? Lord, I will never deny you. I will take up my life for you. I will never leave you, right? I will offer myself up for you. He didn't know himself. In other words, they sang the song of worship and they thought automatically, instinctively, surely they're the people in verse 3, holy, blameless, freely offering themselves up to God and not the people in verse 6. So that when Jesus came as the Messiah, they didn't think to themselves, oh no, here comes judgment. Rather, in self-deception, they thought to themselves, finally, we are good and holy people. Judgment will come upon the other people. 
Friends, what makes us believe that we're the people in verse 3? As we're going through this, this text so far, the king, the priest, this warrior, what makes us believe that we are going to be the people that are holy, that we are the people that would offer ourselves freely, that we will not be part of the pile of corpses that will be executed by this king of righteousness? Because, friends, he's a king of righteousness. Do you really love righteousness? Can you be honest with yourselves here? A king of righteousness would only want to be followed by a holy people. But if you're really honest with yourself and you stop lying to ourselves, do you really love righteousness? You know, it's amazing to me how many times I've talked to many people, and I felt this in my own self, right? Every time that people come back to Jakarta from the States, from the West, from Australia, even from other Asian countries, and then I ask them, you know, what, why are you looking forward to come back, coming back? Let's bring it home for a moment. Why are you looking forward to coming back? Well, you know, Jakarta's not perfect in a lot of ways, and you know, uh, and, and we 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 talk a big talk, but wanting to clean up corruption, wanting to clean up injustice, wanting to make sure that our leaders rule in justice and wisdom, and the oppressed might be lifted up. But there's also a little part of you that is glad to come back because you know, here, if you know the right people, you have the right amount of money, you can get away with a lot of things. You forgot to renew your driver's license. You know the right people. You got to. You got to. You don't have to take the test again. You, you know, some people come up in the DMV. You can't do that. People, people come back here and they say, you know, Jakarta might not be ideal, but actually, you know, I like the status quo. Things are a little bit easier here. You can get away with a lot of things. You see, and they're coming back and they're they're looking forward to what they would call the privileges of Jakarta life, and then you would talk the big talk of. Cleaning up injustice, making sure that people rule in injustice, making sure that righteousness and wisdom is being carried out by the rulers of the day. But deep inside, you're also kind of worried. Because you know, if the rulers of the city started to rule in perfect justice, you would no longer feel comfortable. You ever notice that? Do you actually want to follow the king of righteousness? Why shouldn't you... Come before this king of righteousness. Why should this holy and perfect and just priest king look at you and say, I will take up this person's case. He does not deserve to die. He will not be among the nations when the corpses pile up. He will be one of those holy ones. He would truly offer himself up to me. What makes us think that we will be in verse 3 and not in verse 6? Inadvertently, you've actually read this text like the disciples before Jesus' death. Inadvertently, we read this text just as those Jews and the Pharisees did when Jesus came claiming to be Messiah. When are you going to take down our enemies? When are we going to be taken into your wings? Friends, and this is the amazing (laughs) reversal. Because this Lord is not just your priest. He's not just your king. He's not just the warrior that you should tremble before. This Lord... It's also David's Lord. Notice at the very, this is the fourth point. Notice at the very beginning of the psalm, what does it say? It says that it is a psalm of David. It's a psalm of David. In other words, the psalmist makes sure that you know who wrote this. The psalmist makes sure that you know whose perspective this is speaking from. So in verse 1, when it says, the Lord says to my Lord, who's speaking? The king of Israel. 
And if you, if you remember the whole of the Old Testament, David was the paradigmatic king. He was the ruler that was after God's own heart. He was the ruler who was pure. He was the ruler that was ruling in justice. And Israel was, was prosperous when David was ruling. But at the same time, David is saying, there's someone other than me. There's someone greater than me. There's someone identical to God, but yet at the same time distinct from God, who is the greater king. There's a David that is greater than David. There is a Lord that is greater than the Lord. There is a king greater than the king of Israel. And friends, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, verse 41 to 44. I want you to see this. Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 44. You know, people often say Jesus never claimed to be God. People, you know, where do you see that in, in the Bible? Well, here's one of the places where you could see it. Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 44. Please turn there with me. Who was this greater king? Who was it that David was pointing to? Who was it that Israel was praying for? Who was it that Israel was singing this to this whole time? Now, this is what it says in verse 41 of chapter 22 of Matthew. This is also, by the way, reiterated in Luke In Mark, the synoptic gospels, the three gospels, other than John, all emphasize that Jesus said this. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, and who were the Pharisees? Again, the rulers of of the religious, uh, you know, of the religious order. They were the ones who knew the Old Testament best in that time. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And notice if, especially in the ancient times, if you're somebody's son, you're automatically subordinate to your father, right? They said to him, the son of David. And look at what Jesus said to, to, back to the Pharisees. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit, Psalm 110, calls him Lord? Because if he's David's son, why would David call his own son his Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. What is Jesus doing? He's he's saying this. You know that psalm that you're constantly singing in the synagogues? You know that psalm that you memorized growing up? You know that psalm that David himself wrote? These psalms that you've sung and memorized pointed to someone greater than David who couldn't just be merely David's son. He's not merely human, but he's not merely divine. He's fully human, fully divine, all in one person. Who is this person that you are worshiping all of your life of Pharisee? Who is the psalm pointing to who, that you've memorized, O Pharisee? And by the way, psalms are psalms of worship. Nobody could receive worship other than God alone. Who was this person, if not God, but at the same time distinct from God? What is, you know what Jesus is saying? That's me. You are trying to persecute and kill, O Pharisee, the very person that you've been singing about and singing to your entire existence as the people of Israel. I am right there in the Hebrew Bible. I am right there in the Old Testament. David was never supposed to be true and proper king. David pointed to a greater king above himself. A king was also a priest. 
And here's the amazing reversal, friends. Because Jesus, when he came, did not come first in judgment, as the psalm is predicting in verses 5 to 7. Jesus instead came not to lay out the corpses of all the nations, but rather to become a corpse. Jesus didn't come to lay out corpses of the other nations, but rather when then all the nations, including Israel, should become corpses, he instead become their corpse on their behalf. Jesus, instead of looking upon the people and saying, these people are holy, I will now rescue them, instead says, I am holy and my holy garments. And notice in verse 3 it says, they are wearing holy garments. It doesn't say that they were holy people. A holy garment given not because of their righteousness, but because of Jesus' righteousness. So that Jesus' holy garments were given upon an unclean people, and those who were supposed to be corpses instead became holy, and Jesus, who was the only one holy, the only one who was to execute judgment, did not come in judgment, but himself became judged and became a corpse. The judge of the earth became judged for you. The king of righteousness, the priest of righteousness, was judged on your behalf so that you might become the righteousness of God. Why would Jesus, in other words, take up your case and say, I will defend this people as their priest? Because he's saying, not that they're clean, but rather they're wearing my holy garments. It's been done. Their penalty had been paid for. I have died. Lord, if you were truly just, you know that the penalty had been paid for. I am the priest of righteousness, so now free them. Why should you trust this king? How can you now be the people of verse 3? Because you know that a king who's died for you is worthy of your trust. And now that he's died for you, and you know that he would die for you, you can now die for him. What could come your way? What could stop you from obeying this kind of king? You know, friends, no longer... Are you going to be a corpse in the final day? Because when he does come in judgment, friends, when he does come in judgment, you know you should have been there. You should have been a corpse just like everybody else. But rather instead, he was the corpse for you so that when he actually comes in judgment, you would be safe. But friends, how do you know in the last day? Whose garments would you be wearing? Your own? I hope not. Adam and Eve tried that. It didn't bode well for them. Friends, how do you know you won't be a corpse in the last day? Friends, remember he who was the corpse on your behalf. And he was raised. So wear his garments. Don't trust in your own righteousness. Trust in his. Let us pray. Father, it's a dense and tough text. It is theologically profound. It is incredibly profound that God's own people had been singing about this all along, and yet when you came, Lord God, his own did not recognize him. His own people did not recognize their king. And instead of thinking that they were supposed to be judged, he was judged on their behalf, and he became the corpse rather than us. Father, help us now rely on him. Help us now obey him freely and willingly because he first laid down his life for us. Pray these things in Jesus' name.